0: Welcome to The Food Group, a podcast aimed at people who love to know a little more about the food they're eating, and I don't mean what's in it, but more about how the dish they've chosen came to even exist at all. What was it that made someone, not always a chef, put those ingredients together in the first place, and what made others copy them and keep it alive for sometimes centuries? And before we start, a disclaimer. These tales are just that tales they are meant to entertain and be retold with even more wit and invention their foothold in any kind of fact is pure coincidence although where possible we have tried to back them up with legitimate evidence or endorsement however it is very likely none of what you're about to hear ever happened okay so i hope you're all sitting comfortably as we're starting this podcast with quite a dark story this is a rather grotesque, gothic tale behind a little-known recipe called sauce Choron, a simple tomato-infused hollandaise which is great with fish. Not all of food history is a collection of celebrations and riotous parties, sometimes for are less glamorous beginnings to some of the dishes we know today. However, there is usually a very resourceful mind at the centre of these things, and this time it comes in the guise of a French chef called Alexandre Etienne Choron. Chiron was born in Cannes in 1837 and worked his way through some of the biggest kitchens in France before heading into the restaurant world. He worked hard and eventually at the age of 33 he found himself a chef de cuisine at the fine dining Parisian restaurant Voisin in the heart of the city's entertainment quarter. He used all his experience to create classic dishes and serve them to the wealthy people of Paris. The sauce he made is quite straightforward in design and involves the addition of tomato puree to a classic béarnaise. But let's get a
1: professional iron proceedings from chef Daniel Galmiche. So what is is béarnaise? It's uh, literally egg yolk with a little bit of water, reduction of shallot, a little bit of vinegar, a little bit of uh, tarragon. Yeah? Uh, and uh, so you do this reduction you add the egg yolk to it and you emulsion, emulsion. But the trick is that you need to try to keep the same temperature, otherwise you end up with a scrambled egg, which you don't want. It need to be smooth, it needs to be light. So to be light, sometime in modern time, we add a little bit of warm water and add to that, which is a really tricky part because it needs to be all on the same temperature, clarified butter, which you add drop by drop or a small constant drizzle and whisk it and whisk it and whisk it. And that's what makes uh, this bearness sauce or emulsion solidify a little bit. And all the time, when it starts to be too strong again, you put a little bit of water to drop it down so it stays really light. And also, it gives you a possibility to let, leave it on the side and it doesn't split because that's the big problem. And sometimes Chef was cheating, adding a reduction of cream in it, so it didn't split. But the sharon The Choron from uh, from this uh, gentleman, Choron, added to that a a puree of fresh tomato, but reduced to a paste which is uh, hard enough to be incorporating. So the Choron still have its quality and consistency. And it became very famous because it goes with fish, it goes with meat, it goes with kind of a lot of
0: stuff. Well, the sauce lives on today and is well used by cooks and chefs all over the world, keeping Chiron's name alive. But I do wonder, had not the cruel hand of history reached down and touched him, would this simple red Bearnais sauce have been enough to secure his legacy? What follows is one of the most extraordinary stories in our food culture and one that may well outlive Chiron's sauce, as his name is also associated with something a whole lot darker. So... As I explained, back in 1870, Chiron was at the top of his game and was in charge of one of Paris's most luxurious restaurants by the name of Voisin. Voisin means neighbour, incidentally, and it sat in the Rue Saint-Honoré, a fine neighbourhood, and it was the epitome of high-end French dining. But outside the walls of the most exciting city in the world, a war was raging. Kaiser Wilhelm I had led his Prussian army to victory in the Sedan wiping out French forces led by Napoleon III, the less effective grandson of the great emperor, leaving the path to Paris wide open. They reached the city gates on September 18, 1870, and decided against an aerial bombardment in favour of a siege. The idea was to slowly starve the city into surrender. The Prussians were confident of a quick outcome, but massively underestimated the determined nature of the French National Guard, who dug in, and by December, the city was still clinging on. However, under siege conditions, food supplies are non-existent. The city is effectively cut off from the outside world and this is a time before refrigeration and long-term preservation and sources of protein were scarce. The Prussian troops had all roads in and out of the city blocked so the population of Paris were forced to eat what they could find. Rats, cats, horses, you name it, they ate it. But the diners of restaurant voisin demanded something a little more sophisticated you think that during a war, people wouldn't necessarily be thinking about fine dining. It certainly wasn't the rage during the 1940s in London. But the aristocracy of Paris had much stronger appetites, and they were undeterred. And if the people wanted to eat out, then Voisin was going to be the place where they ate. But half a dozen rats and some scrawny felines was not going to be enough to satisfy this crowd. Now Paris was home to three zoos at a time, and it was becoming more and more difficult to find food to keep all their inhabitants alive. So the enterprising Charon saw an opportunity and made a deal to purchase the majority of the exhibits. He left behind the monkeys for hippos and lizards, but the rest he took, slaughtered and put in various cold stores all over the city. What followed is like something out of an H.P. Lovecraft novel, a series of dinners so grotesque by today's sensibilities that it is almost impossible to believe. Chiron began to work with his new ingredients in the only way he knew. Using classical French training, he created feasts of elephant consomme and roasted camel. He made tureens of antelope and haunches of wolf served in a venison sauce. There were even whole ribs of bear. I suspect the diners barely noticed the accompanying light pink tomato-infused sauce. Let's see what our modern-day French
1: chef Daniel Garmiche would have made of all of this. I guess during that really hard time and the siege, uh, you had no much choice. So I would have probably done the same being a chef, you know. And I guess the sauce was so good and he it was, it was masking all this kind of uh, ingredient, I suppose.
0: So how would you go about
1: sort of working as a chef, working with something like an elephant? I mean, what well, I don't know. If you, if you see, yeah, you use your background, you use your base, and you said, okay, that's the way I cook venison. Is that working with bear? Is that working with wolf? Is that working with the uh, thing? And obviously, I guess for elephant, for the trump, you probably have to braise it very long time, uh, and uh, to make it tender, and uh, cut it the way I don't know. guys. <laughs> I'm not quite sure really, and. Uh, I guess they're so to be really good.
0: <laughs> the b- very biggest and best of these events was a feast on Christmas Day in 1870, a record of which still exists today, and all of it was washed down with the very best of the remaining wine supplies in the city, vintages of Romani Conti, Chateau Latour, and Margaux. There was no way the
1: Prussians were going to get their hands on those. At the end of it, never mind to be the chef, I think I would have loved to be a customer for this gorgeous wine, drinking this beautiful Romani Conti. Imagine that. Just for that, it worth it, no? Charon managed to keep going with his dinners until
0: the New Year. The siege itself went on much longer than any Prussian expected, and strong resistance by the French meant that the streets were full of fierce fighting, but food supplies eventually ran out in mid-January, and the siege broke on the 28th of January, 1871. Charon himself had run out of elephant meat a week or so before, so who knows what he was cooking by then? The French were finally defeated, and a new German empire was formed – the siege was a terrible time for Paris, with mass starvation and death everywhere. There are many books written about the awful conditions people endured while Chiron was carving legs of wolf, one of which is by the British novelist Arnold Bennett called The Old Wife's Tale. It's about two sisters caught up in the city at the time. You may recognise the name of the author more than the book, and the story of his eponymous omelette and his claim to gastronomic greatness we shall examine in another podcast. <music> Let's leave war Paris, but before we do, just recall some of those incredible wines that Charon served with his carnival of animals. Romanee Conti, Margot, any of which could claim a slot in our Cellar of the Gods. Wine expert Ollie Smith has another entry in a moment, but we also want to help you put together an altogether more accessible wine rack. A rack full of no less interesting wines, but maybe a little more gettable and affordable.
2: What have you got, Ollie? I have got a very accessible, very affordable wine from the Greek island of Santorini, which a lot of people have gone on holiday there. It's beautiful, black volcanic sand, emblematic and iconic against that shock blue sea. It has a massive wine tradition stretching back. Old vines, woven around themselves like birds' nests on the ground. Why do they do that? Well, they're covering them over to protect them from the midday heat. They're also protecting them from the Meltemi wind. Uh, this is the assyrtiko vines, the assyrtiko grape. It's very steely, it's very citrusy, zesty, bright, intense, well-fleshy, structured, minerally wine. They're effectively creating a mesoclimate, an individual climate for each Vine. So you've got that, you've got them plunging their roots for, in some cases, hundreds of years down into this volcanic soil. There's very little water, so they're worked very hard. The sea mist creeps in on a lot of these vines and coats them in this kind of salty dew. So you get wines like Thalassitis, which means from the sea, made by Gyros H, which I adore. But you've got so many good producers. You've got Harry Hatzidakis, you've got Sigalas, you've got Agiros, and more coming on stream. Yes, it's about history. Yes, it's about affordability, but it's really about a wine that is beautifully available, incredibly intense, wonderfully transporting. But really, you know, it's on your doorstep. It is in the shops, folks. You need to go and get some. You can taste the kind of entry level stuff for, you know, under a tenner, under £10 sterling. But wherever you are in the world, you can then go through the gears. There are some magnificent single vineyards and you can taste beyond the realms of what you thought possible. And more than taking you on holiday, it will take you to the next dimension of taste. So is it always white wines from Santorini? No, they do Mavro they do reds, uh, they do sweet wines, amazing old sweet wines, Vinsanto. And there's, there's been this whole kind of ruckus about, well, the Italians have got this Vinsanto, but where's the original, well, it's been settled and Santorini is now allowed to call it Vinsanto. Uh, it has this very kind of sharp, zesty style as well as sweetness. They're, they're kind of lethal. I love them, but they are they are really, uh, who said lip smackerous? It was someone rolled Dahl created probably, but they are lip smackerous because there's this sweetness, but then you go, ah! It's almost like Sarsen's malt vinegar at the end of it, in a good way, in a good way. Um, but yeah, you get all sorts from Santorini, but really and truly, for me, it's about the white wine. It's about Assetico, the steel, the rod, the volcano, the power! <laughs>
0: In these podcasts we're sharing the stories behind some of the well-known dishes we see on menus all over the world today As well as a few suggestions of what wines you could be drinking that you may not have tried But alongside that we want to put together an imaginary collection of a dozen or so of the finest wines that have ever been produced So these could just be those vintages from certain producers that send wine enthusiasts into paroxysms of joy at their mere mention Or perhaps their
2: wines that have a historical perspective or relevance Here's Ollie again Klein Constantia. It's a sweet wine from South Africa that belongs in the heart of our wine rack of the gods. You might think of South Africa as being a kind of a so-called new world country. It's only been doing it a few years. Nonsense. This wine has been happening quietly in the background for 330 years. Napoleon drank this stuff in his exile in St Helena. Dickens wrote about it. It features in Fifty Shades of Grey. It's a bit more modern. Uh, but it is something that in 1685, Simon van der Stel founded the place. And the sweet wine tradition actually came later. It's a late harvest wine. And Muscat lies at its heart. There's a, a million and one reasons why I love it. Matt Day who's, he must be just about 30 now, but he's basically a wine-making baby. And I don't mean that disrespectfully. I mean, he's bringing youth and energy to a very traditional style of wine that has a massive amount of heritage. The bottle is beautiful. I mean, it looks very Dickensian, shouldered and squat and quite kind of butch and it looks like a you know a medicine bottle but when you taste it it has this mellow sweetness so a lot of sweet ones have a lot of acidity this one yeah it's got some freshness but it really is truly mellow and it is truly mesmeric and the reason I've chosen the I think I chose the 2011 don't you the 2011 yeah that's yes, there. Did. the 2011 I'm, gonna, I'm literally going to look in my notes here, um, <laughs> which, funnily enough, I've just landed on the phrase, oh, baboons stealing bunches is a problem, uh, apparently, says Matt. Uh, so the 2011, I tasted with him, and I tasted back through loads of vintages, the 88, the 92, the 96, and so forth. But the 2011 marks for me a real step forward. You know, if I was giving points, I would give it full marks for its, its core. It has a core that will outlive us all. That's why I love it. And you can taste it now. You can buy this. You can get this wine. It does belong in the wine rack of the gods, but trust me in the future, it'll be unbiably expensive because of its longevity. So
0: people listening to this may or may not be lucky enough to have one or two of these wines mm. of the gods we're talking about. You know, when we're talking about Klein Constantia, when should people open these? Oh, they might want to keep them question. forever and treasure them like the most precious things oh. in the universe that they are, but at some point you want to try them. When, when
2: and how? Well, I think you should open them when you have a really crappy day at work don't make the wine be the occasion allow the wine to be the game changer because if you put too much onto it and the expectation if you wait for a big anniversary a birthday and it's corked or it doesn't quite live up to how you thought it would taste it's going to mangle the day what you want to do is wait till you've had an unfortunate occurrence you know you've pranged the car you've had a row with someone you love put that right open the bottle of godly wine and share it with someone you love Thanks Ollie and
0: we'll be putting the whole list up on our website thefoodgrouppodcast.com and if you would like to add one or suggest one do let us know either there or through our Facebook page and don't forget to subscribe to these podcasts so you never miss an episode either. You're listening to the Food Group Podcast, a place for inquisitive food lovers to learn a little more about the more famous dishes in our lexicon of gastronomy. The story earlier of the chef Alexander Charon and his wartime endeavours was an extreme example of a man creating dishes out of necessity and with the few ingredients at his disposal. Often, place and surroundings are key to many of the stories behind well-known dishes. Maybe not to the extent of eating your local zoo, but in the case of pizza margarita, we have a dish that represents not just the region in which it was made, but a whole country of Italy. Let's hear from chef Joe Hurd, a man whose Italian ancestry has made him particularly passionate on the subject.
3: It's the gold standard of pizza. It's the benchmark. It's the leveller. If you go to a pizzeria, my rule is you always have to start with a pizza margarita. If they do a good margarita... You can have anything after that. You know they're going to do it well. It's a simple combination. I mean, you take bread and put it with tomato and cheese. It's going to taste great. Whatever format, whether that's Warbison's Toasty Loaf, ketchup and some cheddar, it'll taste good. It's just a classic combination. You've got that creamy fattiness of the milk with the slight acidity especially getting buffalo mozzarella combine that with that kind of deep uncooked tomato sauce the sweetness of the san marzano tomato which is all full of those wonderful minerals and stuff you get from the volcanic earth it's created in and then the pizza base just slightly tinged with a bit of color um with that wheaty flavor it's a fantastic pizza it It's iconic. It looks iconic. It's been popularized in so many things. Think of cartoons, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the opening sequence of pizza and margarita flies at the screen. That's what I grew up with in the 80s. If you grew up in an Italian-English family, when you went to a restaurant up until the age of 10, you didn't qualify for pasta. You had to have the pizza margarita. No matter if you wanted... You could have wanted like rabbit on the menu, but it wasn't. You were getting a pizza margarita. That was the baby food, which I rejected up until I was about 20. And now... Into my thirties, it's all I can think about. It, it is the classic, simple street food. It was designed for good times. You have it as pizza al taglio, so the square slices you might buy in the train station, the bus station. You have it accompanying a beer. You have it, you know, with your friends before a football match. You fold it up. You can stick it in your pocket. You can write, eat it in paper, or you can sit down and have a knife and fork. You know, it, it's one of those kind of things. It, it really fits into any cultural or social event a pizza margarita could be present it's simple to make it's easy to make it's cheap to make it has the national flag for colors the tricolora red white and green i mean when you go to naples i defy you to go into a pizza restaurant and uh, if you can get the guts to ask for anything other than a margarita or a marinara and i think when a city invests so much trust in just one or two dishes, you have to think that there's something pretty good about this and something quite special. Um, I think in our kind of Western approach to Italian food, when Italians left Italy to go to America, they suddenly realised that they could mass produce salami and eat it cheaply. They could mass produce mozzarella, provolone, chicken, sausage, beef, all became readily available to them. So obviously it all went on a pizza, but take it back to its very root, pizza is margarita.
0: The origins of pizza itself are much older than any Italian or even Roman chef. More than likely they go as far back as ancient Greece when people would devour flatbreads covered in just a drizzle of olive oil. Later the Romans did make them and cover them in honey, bay leaves and cheese too. And by the reign of King Ferdinand in around 1820, the streets of Naples were full of vendors handing them out to any takers, baking them to order. The king himself was banned from eating them at court due to pizza being deemed unsuitable for royal consumption and only fit for the peasants. However, the resourceful king would disguise himself in rags and walk among the streets and visit as many pizzerias as he could without being discovered. So next time you're in the queue at the local pizza shop, it's worth taking a closer look at the people around you as you just never know who you might find. Anyway, Naples has been the global capital of pizza for a few hundred years and it's no coincidence that the basic topping ingredients of tomato and mozzarella are the two major products from the region. The landscape of the Neapolitan area is dominated by one thing, Mount Vesuvius. This currently quiet volcano once spewed ash and lava on a fairly regular basis. Famously, of course, in 79 AD, the explosion was so big, its destructive power saw the end of the city of Pompeii and nearby Herculaneum. One side effect of all this devastation was a soil rich in minerals and very fertile. It became the perfect place to grow what has become Italy's national product, tomatoes. Tomatoes were originally brought to Italy by tradesmen from South America and they made themselves very much at home. Each region has its own particular variety but those grown in San Marzano near Naples were oval in shape, plump and full of juicy sweet flesh. They have very few seeds which make it perfect for sauces and became a staple topping for the flatbreads of the region. The other thing that is in abundance on the mountain foothills are cattle. Buffalo, to be precise, and their milk has long been used to make rich, creamy, soft mozzarella cheese. So it's not surprising that many entrepreneurial cooks in the city began selling pizza, and you can see how the many pizzerias of the city were able to claim the dish as its regional emblem. The basic Neapolitan pizza is just a combination of these two incredible local ingredients, tomato and mozzarella. And to see how Margherita appeared, we have to skip forward to a few years after the days of Ferdinand and his secretive street trips to about 1890 or so. The King of Italy is now Umberto I, and his queen, Margherita Maria Teresa Giovanna di Savoia, was touring the regions of her kingdom. The aim was to help quell the growing unrest and displeasure with her husband's rule. The tour created a great excuse to celebrate in all the towns and cities she visited. Her visit to Naples was to be marked with a brand new pizza, created by the most famous pizza maker in the city, Raffaele Esposito. His tavern, called Pizzeria di Petro e Basta, was the number one spot to try the growing national obsession. He prepared three different pizzas for her to try, but it was the combination of the San Mazzano, mozzarella and fresh basil that won her heart. Not only was it delicious, but its colours were that of a newly created Italian flag. Here's Joe Hurd again explaining how to put one together yourself.
3: For me, um, the perfect pizza base should be soft, pliable. It should have a kind of fluffy light crust, which think of it like the Bay of Naples. Okay, so you've got the big old volcano in the corner that's your crust and it goes down to a nice kind of soft smooth plane you should have something really to get your teeth into uh, it should be colored the Australians have a wonderful word for what us in the in 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 England and Italy would say was slightly burnt they call it leoparding so when you get those kind of little black spots, So you want it nice and leoparded around the exterior crust. Now, the base as well should be quite a well-hydrated base, um, which does make it quite difficult to do in the home. Um, I use around usually about a kilo of flour. I'll put 600 mils of water into that, which makes it very, very wet. Think of like slightly overly wet chewing gum. I only use a very small amount of yeast, about two grams of fresh yeast, beer yeast or brewer's yeast, You can use fast action, though. Um, Fast action, though, just be a bit careful because the proving times I'm going to suggest, which is usually about 24 hours in the fridge, uh, if you're using fast action, you use too much of it, it's just going to go crazy. So um, two grams, fresh yeast, um, mix it with the water. Uh, You don't need any sugar in there. Big, big kind of fallacy here. Sugar, um, if you add sugar to the yeast, the kind of everything gets a bit sidetracked. The sugar becomes the the main show um, for the chemical reactions, but you want that yeast to really pair up with the flour and get all those kind of like, you know, carbon dioxide burping and farting and creating those bubbles for you. So leave that in a fridge for about 24 hours. You should have something which is relatively untouchable at the end of it, but wet your hands, get your flour on the deck, and push it out to make a lovely kind of nice crisp base. Now, the Neapolitans don't like to touch their base too much. If you think it's full of kind of bubbles, and if you push the bubbles, if you kind of crack them about a bit, you're going to break all of it and you're not going to get the nice puffy sides and you're not going to get that kind of aeration in the dough. So they really gently kind of prise it out from the middle. So you kind of push the dough from the middle out, creating the rim first and then stretching it as you go along. No need to flip it, no need to twirl it or spin it just kind of gently ease it out, move it around with the palms of your hands. Sauce, big important part of this. Now when I do the judging at the National Pizza Awards, I've become like a bloodhound. If you've cooked that sauce, I can tell you've cooked a sauce. Never ever cook the sauce, it's gotta be raw. I usually do something like a tin of San Marzano tomatoes, blitz it up or put it through a moule, raw extra virgin olive oil, um, some garlic, it's very thinly sliced, pinch of a good oregano don't use fresh oregano it's a bit too much don't use a really rubbishy dried you know that kind of Schwartz jar you've got back in the cupboard from 1971 you might as well put sawdust in it get a really nice good quality dried oregano from the deli just a pinch of that in there handful of basil plenty of salt and uh, just a pinch of sugar leave that in the fridge for maybe seven or eight hours maybe for the day and then come and use it straight away. If you cook your sauce beforehand, it'll concentrate it once. So when you put it in the oven, you'll concentrate it twice again, and it becomes too much like a puree, too sweet, too rich. Now, the mozzarella for me has to be, if you're going to sit down and have something quite refined, buffalo mozzarella, it's going to get quite wet. Now, what drives me mad in this country is how the British preoccupation with having a pizza which is thin and crispy. A Neapolitan pizza should be wet and sloppy. It should kind of force you to use a knife and fork. It should force you to have a napkin you should have the the sides quite crisp but the middle should be a quagmire of cheese and good times so Um, use the best buffalo mozzarella you can have. If you don't have that, my little tip is buy some really cheap mozzarella and mix it with a little bit of cream, parmesan, olive oil and then add a touch a bit more salt and you should recreate something a bit like buffalo mozzarella. And of course, you have to have fresh basil on it. Put it on before the oven, it goes in the oven and then finish maybe with a bit afterwards and a drizzle of olive oil. Now Carluccio says the official way of doing a uh, pizza margarita is to also finish it with parmesan and I do like that. It just gives it a kind of nice sodium kick at the end, although I don't think that is in the official guidelines, Mr. Carluccio. All reference to you, though, sir. Um, so that's your basic margarita now. When we're talking about cooking, if you don't have a pizza oven, heat up a frying pan really, really super hot. Um, Turn on your oven and your grill if you've got that function. Put the pizza base straight into the frying pan. It'll start to cook from the base up, and then you can stick it in the oven, and it'll cook it all the way around. So you should have about eight or nine minutes. Um, One tip, if you don't want to brown the cheese too much if you're cooking it in that method, put the cheese on just at the end, and you'll get that lovely creamy emulsion, which will mix in with the tomato and create that fantastic salmon-coral Uh, kind of colour, which everybody knows and loves, which you find glooping about on your pizza plate at the end. So that's my recipe for pizza margarita. Um, There are lots of other variations though. Like I said, there's different crusts. You go up and down the peninsula um, from the big, thick, hearty Sicilian crusts, right the way to the kind of more thin and crispy Roman crusts in the north and the Genovese crust. So really choose your crust, but keep the sauces cool. Queen Margherita wrote to Esposito,
0: exclaiming her delight for the pizza and his fame soon spread. People kept coming to try his trickle dish and they've kept coming ever since. The restaurant still exists today under the name Pizzeria Brandi, and the legend lives on. Its journey to world domination was pretty quick. The 20th century saw many Italians resettled across Europe and America, and with them went the pizza-making skills, New York becoming a particular hotspot for them. Rumour has it the soft water in the city helped make the dough particularly stretchy and thus able to make the larger size specimens that many New York pizza shops specialise in. So obsessed did one restaurateur in California get with this theory and his inability to make the New York style pizza under the heat of the Los Angeles sun that he shipped the water for his dough across the two and a half thousand miles from New York just so he could make his margaritas the way he liked them. Well it's time to wrap up this edition of The Food Group. There are more stories in the book Who Put the Beef in Wellington by me, James Winter. Do let us know what you think via our Facebook page The Food Group or our website thefoodgrouppodcast.com which also has more detailed information about the show and you can contact us if you're interested in sponsoring us. And make sure you hit subscribe in your podcast app so you never miss an episode. Bye for now. The Food Group is a CM Audio production.